I think you got to have a great attitude and be willing to try things and to be open-minded and then to really learn how to build your own self-confidence and self-esteem, self-worth, and that way you can handle the rocky road that entrepreneurship really is. Hey everyone, welcome to the Self-Employed Journey Podcast. I'm Cami Powell, your host, a self-diagnosed serial entrepreneur, successful business owner, author, and mom. I'm also a student working towards my PhD in business, driven to lead a movement of increasing small business success rates through an epidemic of failures. So each week, I'll be dropping new episodes filled with inspiration, motivation, tips and tricks to help you thrive and survive through the crazy world that is small business ownership. I've lined up some pretty phenomenal guests in a variety of industries that are ready to share their own secrets for running a successful business. Whether you're self-employed or you want to be, make sure to subscribe for updates on new episodes as they're released. Let's do this. So today we're interviewing Chris Palmasano. He's a COO of Rocket Dollar. Thanks for joining me. So we're in this PhD program together. And so we're going to interview him today, get his story and how you ended up the CEO of Rocket Dollar. Tell everyone kind of what Rocket Dollar is and how it came to fruition before we kind of go backwards in time. Yeah, we can certainly do that. Sure. So Rocket Dollar is a financial services and technology company based here in Austin, Texas. A little over uh, a few dozen employees now. The initial concept was scoped out on the back of a napkin or on a napkin at Houndstooth Coffee, which is at 401 Congress in Austin. It is a coffee shop that's well known to the entrepreneurial segment in the city, kind of a place where, you know, entrepreneurs and investors hang out and meet up and schedule their coffee meetings. This was back when everybody was actually leaving the house. This is the beginning of 2018. And how all this came together, it's fun. It's a fun story. So there were a group of people on the founding team. So first is Henry. Henry's the CEO of the company. And Henry had come up through financial services and his prior company was acquired by Goldman Sachs. The company was called Honest Dollar. And then there's Thomas. And Thomas was uh, the youngest guy on the team at the time, worked for another company. And the company that he was working for then was a company that I was an angel investor in. And the CEO asked me if I'd be his mentor. I said, sure. And so uh, he had eventually moved on from that company and was working down in San Antonio doing something pretty similar to what Rocket Dollar does, but they weren't very tech enabled. And so then Thomas and I met up at a like a holiday kind of happy hour at the very end of 17, 2017. He told me what he was doing and I totally understood these products because I had opened one back in 2007 when the only people doing this were some fly-by-night shops. And we offer like what, what's called a self-directed IRA, which is a, re- a retirement account that can go into alternative assets. We also offer the same type of product for the 401k. And uh, we can talk about how these apply to like small business people and entrepreneurs. But anyhow, Thomas and I linked up and I said, okay, well, you've got to talk to Henry because he knows about these and I know about these. And then the three of us sat down and lo and behold, a few weeks later, we had Rocket Dollar. And then a fourth guy whose name is Rick Dude. Rick is a technologist and came on board as the co-founder and VP of engineering to help get the technical product built. And we're all still working together in some capacity today, just shy of four years later. Rick has since moved on to do some other things. But the other three of us are still here full time. Henry and I still make up the board, plus an outside board member. And we've been at it for just shy of four years. We raised the Series A in October, closed in October, which was really exciting. October of uh, last year, so 2021. And then actually the timing, your timing for this podcast is exceptional because a new release just went out this morning. And so we've got a whole new version of the platform live and up and running. So super exciting time for us and 
really that's the founding story. Everything from literally an idea on the back of a napkin to having a company that now employs a few dozen people and has raised millions of dollars and has nearly 11 figures of assets and thousands and thousands of customers and a good network of partners. So we are off to the races, as they say. That's incredible. This is such an inspiration, like from a napkin to now this huge company that you guys have put together. So I am very curious about the past prior to this. So yes. before 2018, and let's go even further back to childhood. Did you ever have anything entrepreneurial or any type of work experience or you started this creative little thing in your basement at home when you were a kid? Anything like that that resonates with you? Yeah, on some level, sure. My earliest memories of doing businessy kind of things. So both my brother and I were the paper boys in our neighborhood. And we grew up in basically what was an Italian neighborhood in Western New York. And so selling newspapers at oh, you know, 11, 12 years old, 12 years old, I think is when I started that. And you would deliver the papers and then you could sell the newspaper to, or a subscription to the paper, of course, to other people in the neighborhood. And so that was really my first job, um, if you want to call it that. But we were always hustling around as kids. I mean, we shoveled snow, we raked leaves, we did side jobs and maintenance for people. And I mean, literally anything that we could do to make a buck, we did. And up there, like at 15, you could start working part-time someplace. So I went from the paper route to working part-time at a grocery store. You know, I pushed shopping carts and worked the cash register. You took those kinds of jobs because that's just what kids did then or teenagers did back then. You know, it wasn't like an eternity ago, but... <laughs> it seemed like everybody around me had a part-time job. Yeah. Everybody that was 16 or 17 had a part-time job or 15. I mean, everybody went and got jobs at 15. And so it's just, it's just kind of what we all did. My family too, my brother and sister also. We worked at pizzerias, uh, cousins of ours own pizzerias and Italian restaurants. And I worked in those even through college. And then in college was when I was majoring in information systems. And I finally had a couple of like opportunities to go get like real internships at companies and work in the, you know, the IT department. Another one I worked in the engineering department. And so like I went and got real internships and these were really, you know, real jobs that paid and paid well. And, um, and that was kind of the beginning of a, the precursor, if you will, to a professional life. Right. I didn't think I was going to end up an entrepreneur, like a, a startup guy. I, okay. At the time, I didn't really understand what that was. But then when I, you know, fast forward another 10 years or so, by then I was out of college. I had spent several years in the military and then I got my first corporate job after leaving the service. And I was working for a big company and we were constantly talking to potential partners and potential vendors, a lot of which were like startups, tech startups, or you know, venture-backed companies. And that's when I started to learn about all this stuff. And so I thought it was really fascinating. And then eventually I landed at Google. And Google was this fascinating place where they were buying startups left and right. Most of the people that worked at Google had worked at a startup before. And then when you're working for a company like that, you're just totally immersed in like the innovation ecosystem in all mm -hmm. parts of it. And so little by little, you kind of get the itch. And then several years later, after, you know, one thing led to another, you know, here we are and we started this business. I had done other entrepreneurial things along the way, but this is by far probably the biggest thing that I've sunk my teeth into and committed my time to. And it's been fun. It's been exciting. I really think this comes down to attitude and perception. Like, I think you got to have a great attitude and be willing to try things and to be open-minded and then to really learn how to build your own self-confidence and self-esteem and self-worth and 
that way you can handle the rocky road that entrepreneurship really is. And that isn't necessarily something that you learn on a job. You don't need to get a job to learn those things. I think they're very helpful. But the other thing is to probably prepare yourself for this journey as much as possible. So I'm not one of these advocates that tells everybody to quit their job and become an entrepreneur. I actually think you should work with somebody else, build up a war chest and hustle or get your startup or your entrepreneurial idea off the ground, go from the idea to the execution phase while you're working full-time for somebody else. And you'll hear a lot of people today talk about like quit your job and become an entrepreneur or go full-time or, you know, if you have a backup plan, you're just planning to fail. I, I don't believe any of this. I don't believe any of it. In fact, a lot of the most successful people I know have two or three things going on at a time. Yes. And it's something that nobody talks about. It's like this hidden secret. Like, oh, yeah, by the way, they have five things going on that you don't know about. So <laughs> why would that be any different for you or I or somebody that's listening? And so maybe your one primary thing is you have a full-time job and you're working 40 hours a week for somebody else, but you're working three to four hours a day on the weekend for yourself or on some idea. And then if the idea takes off and becomes a real business and you have revenue coming in, or you're about to have revenue coming in, or you can paint a picture to an investor, then leave the full-time job. But I don't think people should just bounce from the full-time job as soon as they get some idea in their head either. Yeah. You can't do everything. And so you really want to make sure that whatever you're doing and putting energy into is something that you're passionate about and that has a potential for future growth. Can you help others kind of figure out in your own words, like how can we take an idea or a concept and be able to say, this has potential. Let's put some of our time and energy into this and see if it goes. Yeah, great question. So look, I I get this one a lot and I actually teach a class at Founder Institute on how to build a business model. And what people really need is a framework and a set of tools to use to figure out whether or not the idea is a good idea and has legs. And so there's a, a couple of basic things that you can do. There's a number of frameworks out there now, but I like the Lean Canvas. I also like the Business Model Canvas as a place to start. And people can just go Google these terms and find a template and pull one of these things down And then we can give them an explanation of how to use this. But in each one of the core areas of the business, and we'll take just a few of them. So the problem, the solution, the value proposition, the target customer, the revenue model. So all these show up in one of these frameworks. And so what I think makes the most sense is to think about what problem you're trying to solve. And then what what is the problem? So write it down. And there's a little box in the template or a little box on the canvas that says problem. So write down your hypothesis, right? Or your, and, and the hypothesis is just a fancy word that means your best guess. So write down your best guess for what problem it is. And then write down your best guess for what your solution is to how you're going to solve that problem. And then write down your best guess for what you think the value proposition is for that solution. And the value proposition is really simple. It's who's going to buy this thing? Why are they going to buy it? What benefit are they going to get? And then you have to answer the question, well, who are you going to sell it to? Or who's going to get the value out of this thing? So that's your target customer. Who do you think that is? Write down your best guess. And then write down how you think you're going to make money with this thing. Are you going to sell them a subscription? Is this a one-time product purchase? Is this a, uh, someone else going to pay for it? Or are you going to build, like, like us, we've got a fintech. Mm-hmm. And so we've got like three or four different ways that we make money. But in the early days, you're only really thinking about one. Is there some way that I think I can make money with this thing? You don't even have to be right. Mm-hmm. But again, you're going to write down your best guesses for these things. And when you've got a good list of guesses there, then I think you start process. And you go out and you test these best guesses. You test these hypotheses. When I give this talk at a school, I call it how to be a startup scientist. But you go out and you, if you think your target customer 
is going to be 40-year-old males that make eighty dollars to $150,000 a year. Well, then I'm going to go out and I'm going to find a couple dozen 40-year-old males that make between eighty dollars and $120,000 a year or whatever. And I'm going to say, hey, here's a problem that I think you have. Do you have this problem? And oh, yeah, if I offered you a solution that looked like blah, 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 and blah, 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 would you buy it? And you're going to do this with enough people so that you can actually tease out whether or not your best guesses are right or not. I love that. That's like our market research. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a form of market research, but it's like very entrepreneurial. It's boots on the ground. It's scrappy, yep. but that's what you have to do. And that doesn't mean you actually have to have a product that you can put in front of them, but you should be able to describe the problem. And if that problem doesn't resonate with them, I'm sorry, you're working on the wrong problem. Or maybe love you need it. to reframe the problem. Mm-hmm. But I think you keep going with this process until you have guesses that are no longer wrong. Yeah, that you have people that are literally screaming, yes, do this. Yes, I need this. Oh my gosh, where have you been? That's exactly right. Did you go through this process? Oh yeah, over and over and over again. We still do it. And so if we're going to launch a new product, we'll go back into this process. And we have some infrastructure and systems and tools and process now that we can use to collect feedback really quickly. Mm -hmm. But we didn't start out with that. Uh, In some cases, you might need to just do a really basic survey. Yeah, And there are tools for that. One of my favorite stories is from a, a software company called ReturnPath. And ReturnPath was an email software company. And they're still up and running. You can look them up. But the founders and the early like product team members literally sat outside Starbucks with $5 gift cards. And anytime someone walked into the Starbucks or walked up to the Starbucks with a computer bag, that was the trigger to stop that person. And they would stop the person and say, hey, look, we're from the software company that builds email. Would you sit down and talk with us for five minutes in exchange for a $5 gift card? Like they did hundreds and hundreds of interviews Um, and they walked out of there with all kinds of valuable insights and information and data and even email addresses of people that they could contact later in cases where people wanted to share that, you know? So I I love that story. I love that. Yeah. And they collected a ton of information. What they were doing was validating their hypotheses about the problem they thought they were solving, the features that they thought they needed to include in the product so that people would actually get value out of it and lo and behold, buy the thing. Yeah. How would you kind of go through this model with someone? I'm thinking of like smaller businesses. Okay, let's use my, I have a partner in another business and we do adult coloring books. How would you model this for something as small as that? I think every single business needs to do this, but like for people that are just something small, it's like a cupcake or a coloring book or something like, can you go through this process and explain that for those people that are having something smaller to sell? They can do the exact same thing. And so you're going to go, who do you think is going to buy it? Let's start there. So an adult coloring book, who's your buyer? Well, adult, female. Okay. But who do you think is really going to buy it? So get a little more specific on some of the demos. I think that they're going to be artistic or like to be artistic, need Mm -hmm. downtime. They are probably between the ages of like 30 to 45, maybe. Where do adult women that are between the ages of 30 and 45 and are artistic, where do they get information on the internet? What sites do they go to? Pinterest. Great. Can you run an ad on Pinterest that says, click here to buy an adult coloring book? Yes. And can that ad point to a landing page that says, click here to give me an email address to get on the waiting list? Can you do that? Yeah. Cool. So then if you put that ad up and you put that landing page up behind it, three months go by and you have no email addresses. Do you think there's demand for an adult coloring book? Nope. Probably not. (laughs) I love it. And look, we just did this off the top of our heads. I don't know. Yeah. It might not be the best, but you get what I'm saying. 
Yes. This I is why who you like, think the target customer is, yeah. is so important because you're going to go out and find a way to get in front of those people and yeah. say, is this something that you think you want or that you want? And if it is, cool. Would you try it? Would you buy it? How much would you pay for it? There's an enormous market out there for adult coloring books. And now with a product like that, one other thing I'll point out is that I mean, you have a bit of an awareness problem because it's not something that, and maybe I'm wrong, but it's not something that's probably getting a ton of like organic Google searches like, hey, let me go find an adult coloring book. So you really need to be particular about where you run the test. Yeah. Uh, if Pinterest is where they're hanging out, throw it up on Pinterest. If you think these women are hitting up the mommy blogs or like some part of the, you know, the women's blogosphere, find a couple <laughs> of blogs and pay them to run an ad yeah. or pay them for a sponsored post. And then again, throw that landing page up behind it with a, just a very simple click here to get on the waiting list and see if anybody's interested. Yeah. Um, and what you're looking for is just early indications that anybody cares about this. Yeah, this is incredible advice for anyone. Before you invest in something, you've got to do your research. You've got to do these things. And I think that the most important thing you're saying here is like, look, let's put it out there. Let's say someone's going to sell tires and whatever. You got to figure out who it is that has the problem that needs the tires and where they're hanging out. Once you figure that out, then you can start testing. So that's that's the process. I'm understanding from you how you've kind of gone through it. Yeah. I mean, I really think you start with what you think might be a problem and you want to see who's having that problem. Mm -hmm. Or you can start with a specific group of people or type of person or type of company and say, what problems do they have and work backwards from there. But either way, you need to be able to state very simply, what problem are you solving? Who are you solving it for? What is the solution? How is the solution going to add value? How are you going to make some money? And then who is the target customer? And then there's more to it than that, of course. But if yeah. you can get that down, you have something that's worth committing time to. This is, you know, Time is the one commodity that we can't get back. Right. So how do I make sure that my, my time is going to be used wisely? Yeah. And then you can keep pivoting and iterating right on this because you're not going to get it all right. But if you found a real problem and you think you got a reasonable solution, maybe you're pointing it at the wrong target customer and you can experiment and you can figure out, well, maybe it's not you know, the head of engineering that's going to be the buyer if it's a B2B product. Maybe it's actually somebody in marketing. And you can figure that out. And you want to get to the point where you have some confidence in all of the answers that you have written down in your little lean business model canvas or whatever framework or tool you're using to put all of this together. And the reason I really like the lean canvas or the business model canvas is that these can then feed into like the components, the content, mm -hmm. when you fill these out, can feed into a pitch deck. Yeah. A presentation that you can take to an investor. And so they map really nicely. Right. And, you know, nobody expects you to have the whole thing figured out. You know, nobody expects you to have the whole business figured out early on. Uh, but the more of that information you can figure out and have some data behind, it'll strengthen your conviction. And I think more. that, I mean, let's talk about investors for a second, because not everyone's going to need or want that, but some are. And when you're going to pitch your presentation, I just want people to know that like investors aren't just hey, give us money. Like they actually have experience in hopefully whatever you're doing. So, and you've had experience with investors, correct? I have, yes. Yeah. I mean, look, we raised outside capital for Rocket Dollar. I've been an angel investor for a while. I've been a venture partner with a venture capital firm for some time also. So I've, I mean, I've seen both sides of the table. I've been yeah. somebody writing checks. I've been somebody working with a venture capital firm to decide, do we write the check or do we not? How big? And been on diligence committees and on a board or two. So yeah, I mean, I've seen both sides of it. 
So on the side of being the investor and giving advice to others that are looking for an investor, what are you looking for? So each investor is going to be different and some are thesis-based investors. So they have something in particular that they believe. They have a belief system and they have conviction and they're looking for investments that fit that thesis. And so that might be, I'll give you an example. I I know some people who believe that uh, home centered and consumer driven healthcare will be the future of healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so that's how they invest. So they look for companies that are helping people take control of their health from home. So as you're saying this, I think that there's huge value then in people really defining, well, number one, we haven't even touched on this, but like, what are they good at? Like, what can you do and get really good and get mastery over? I don't know how you feel about that. So I'm curious, but two, also getting your mission and your values and everything kind of set in place so that the investors those will need to align to have a successful partnership or investor relationship. But how do you feel about mastery over the skills of what you're offering? Well, someone has to know what they're doing. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean, right? I mean, that doesn't yeah. mean you have to know everything. Yeah. And now if you're going to go do a one-person business and be a sole proprietor, and let's say you're going to be a baker and you're going to bake cakes, you better know how to bake cakes. Yeah. Or if you don't, for whatever reason, you still want to get into the cake business. Now you partner up with somebody and that means you need to bring something else to the table. So maybe you're the business person and the two of you come up with some reasonable exchange and some reasonable division of equity ownership in the business. And you figure out how you're going to handle who's going to do day-to-day operations. So the baker does the day-to-day and then you, you're the one that is the, the check writer. And then you support probably operationally the business and administratively. In our case, in the case of Rocket Dollar, we all had different skill sets. And so Henry was a kind of a visionary and uh, had come up through finance. And I'm very much an integrator and an operator. Rick was a technologist. And Thomas had operated and, and, and worked in this kind of business before. And so we had a nice combination of skills and experiences that we were able to use together to build something new and unique and to do it in a unique way. We took what was basically a manual process at a lot of companies and made it a digital workflow and put a whole bunch of extra features and benefits around it. And so uh, that's our story. And not everybody's going to be the same, of course, but I think mastery is important somewhere. The question is, is it relevant in your context or is it not? Yeah, I think that just defining like, well, what do you have experience with? So I heard this crazy statistic and it was like 66% of businesses are owned by sole proprietors. Don't quote me on this because I don't even know where I read this, but then it was like, and of those, they either break even or they're losing every year. And so with that, the value that I see with getting partners is, well, number one, with this statistic, you're going to be financially better off. But there's this huge value of like knowledge that like, no, I don't know everything. I focused on, you know, finances for my entire career and helping small businesses and doing taxes and doing all these things. I don't know the marketing part, right? And so I am not able to be great at that. And I need someone to be great at that. So I have to find someone either to partner or hire or do something. And what you guys have done, which is incredible, is you found this like foursome of people that fit like a puzzle. Yeah, that's right. But I like that's part of the process, I would argue. Often when I do this business model talk, people will say, well, where do I find the people that I'm going to interview? I said, well, if you can't find people to interview, how are you going to find people to come work for you? 
how are you going to find prospects to sell the product to? And so if, if you can't find partners to do this with, I mean, look, we got to have a serious conversation about whether you're serious about this or not. In some cases, people don't or may lack the self-awareness to know what it is they are good at or what they need to pair up with. And look, you'll learn all this over time, but the more of this you can figure out early on, the better off you are. On some level, you have to be able to, like your first sale is to your partners. Yeah. You got to sell them on what you're trying to do, what your goal is, what you're trying to do, what the vision is, and why they should come on board. Partnership is what I say a business marriage because you're going in and you're having to trust. You want to trust these people. They are your partners in business. And so have you ever like experienced a partnership failure before this at all ever? Yeah. I mean, whether it's been, you know, in a big company where, you know, we had a falling out or something, or I've worked at other, another startup prior yeah. uh, and been involved with helping a number of other startups. And so I've seen partnerships flame out or flake out pretty mm-hmm. regularly. It's actually a pretty common thing. Yeah. And so we can come at this from a couple of angles. So one of the things that we did early on is we knew that was very much a possibility. Yeah. And so I wasn't going to actually work full time with these guys when we first started. I was actually going to be the other board member, an independent board member. And then eventually, uh, it was only a few months later that I came on board full time. But because I was already on the board, what that really meant was there was a check one person couldn't just make a bunch of outright decisions because the other person was there also. Checking uh, balances, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And then if you're starting like an LLC or something and you're going to like, you can sit down with an attorney and you can scope out ahead of time what you're going to do when conflict arises and who's going to get the right of first refusal, who's going to get the option to buy first. There are mechanisms for this. Yes. And people will often skip this stuff. Go, oh, the lawyer is expensive. Well, Maybe at the end of the day, it's not. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I always recommend that people sit down with an attorney up front anytime they're doing a partnership and don't skimp on the expenses. This is one of those things that, you know, people will say, oh, well, I can't afford it. Well, I would say you can't afford not to. I agree. Uh, and surely there's something else that you can afford to cut so that you can spend money on this. And then something else that you can do. We did this early on and I think it was genius. One of our investors recommended that we sit down with an executive coach. And so the CEO and I sat down, I'm the COO, so the two of us sat down with an executive coach. She had us take a personality test, and then she put the results side by side and said, you two complement each other really well. Here's how you can work even better together. And so we stick to that. We stick to that still to this day. I love that, and I'm curious if you guys revisit that, because I feel like as executive level, we are growing every day. Do you guys re- revisit and go back to that coach and kind of? Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. Uh, so best practice would be over time, yeah, to continue on and to re-engage at periodic intervals, I think. Yeah. We haven't done a lot of that because we've been focused on some other things. But I think with a little more size, because we're still at a stage where we still do a lot. We're not just managers, right? We're actually still right. you know, very heavily involved. And it's something that we probably should do more of. I, I think that's a good idea. But I'll tell you what we did do. So after the CEO and I worked with an executive coach, we then brought her in and had her have conversations with the rest of the management team, the founders, and the rest of the founding team. And then she explained to them how we are, how we behave, how we operate, how we make decisions, and how we will work best together. And I think that was very, very helpful for all of us to get a better sense on each other. And so that's something else that I recommend people do. I recommend this all the time to entrepreneurs and startup founders and you know founding teams. 
I think this is something you should always do, at least on some level. It's time consuming and you can always find a reason not to do something. But for the people that are absolutely critical and that are making huge decisions and that probably have the most to lose, frankly, I think it's worth doing. You have a lot to lose if you're not being strategic from the beginning. Yeah, you can do these at any time and things can always get better, right? Things can always improve. But looking back on some of the things that I think helped us gel as a team and then work together well and better over time, that was one of the things that I think was helpful. I'll tell you an anecdotal story. So we went out to see one of the best venture capitalists in the world, Sand Hill Road, Silicon Valley, very early on. And we sat down with one of the partners and he said, okay, let's meet up again in a few weeks. And so we flew back out to see the guy a few weeks later and we walked back into his office and we sit down again. He goes, oh my God, it's the same two guys. And he started laughing and he said, look guys, by the time a team comes to see me the second time, usually someone's already gone. There's research on this. You can go look at like, you know, why startups fail mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, founder dynamics and founder relationships uh, is uh, one of the primary reasons that companies go under or that they don't make it or that they don't survive. And often founders want different things. Yeah. And, you know, there's ego involved and there's just so much. The dynamics are, are super, super rich. So you could, you know, we could spend forever talking about this, but, you know, working with that coach, I think was helpful for us. Knowing what everybody wanted out of this was helpful. And then just being, you know, honest about these things. But it was telling that one of the best investors in the world thought it was, you know, noteworthy that the same two guys came to see him a few weeks later. That is an awesome story. And I think that people will really appreciate that. You know, like that's a big deal. Apparently it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, well, that was our takeaway. That yeah. was our takeaway is that, oh, I guess this is almost not normal. This isn't the standard. Yeah. Yeah.